Want to spice up your tabletop role-playing game? Enamored with finding the weirdest tales history has to offer? Or just procrastinating on that essay? Check out the Maniculum Podcast, where we point the finger back at the Middle Ages. We're your hosts, Mac and Zoe, two post-grad medievalists dedicated to finding the weirdest and wackiest moments of medieval literature and using them to our advantage. In each episode, we read a new medieval text, explain its cultural context, poke some fun at its shenanigans, and adapt it for modern storytelling and tabletop role-playing campaigns. Whether you're an academic looking for obscure citations or a GM looking for new ways to torment your players, the Maniculum Podcast has you covered. We've even compiled all our historically inspired homebrews and some useful articles on our website, themaniculumpodcast.com. Listen to our fortnightly podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, or your preferred podcasting app now. Stay safe, stay sane, and we hope to see you there. Hello, and welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 103, Pope Gregory IV. Ooh, a new Greg. It's a new Greg. So Gregory was born in Rome sometime around the year 795, and his father was a wealthy Roman noble called John. The Liber Pontificalis describes him as a man of stamina before the usual praise. Remember when I said stamina was going to be a big thing? Yeah, you're just, you keep saying stamina, and I'm like, I don't want this in my popes. But he is a man of stamina. You have to just take it. No, that's exactly the opposite thing I want to do. Well, I have complaints too, because then another article referred to him as energetic but mild, which doesn't say much at all. About his personality. That seems to be, like, quite a contradiction. Energetic but mild. Like, just vibrating in his seat. I guess? I mean, does this tell us about his personality? It sounds like he's got, like, like he's a small chihuahua. Or is it like a small dog who just shakes? There's nothing mild about a chihuahua. They True. are filled Ch- with rage. Small dog. Like, another type of small dog that isn't gonna rage at, like, a chihuahua. Chihuahuas are little <laughs> They are. Any other small dog. (laughs) That is energetic but mild. Okay, so small dog Gregory. Like many young noblemen of his age, Gregory entered the church and was ordained as a priest in the papacy of Pascal. Not much fuss is made of his early church career, but at some point he was appointed to be the cardinal priest of San Marco, and this is the role that he served in when he was elected to be the next pope in October of 827. I definitely just googled energetic but mild small dog and got pug. Oh no! How unfortunate. So poor Gregory IV cannot breathe? <laughs> no, That's what we've not decided. Even a little. Just go. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to keep that in mind when we look at his picture. I'm going to look at his picture for a second. Oh dear. <laughs> You'll you'll decide whether he's a pug man. Now, as we said, Gregory was of the nobility, and since his election is called unanimous, quote, agreed with a single mind and heart, this shows that fairly clearly the nobility are sparing no effort to control the outcome of the papal elections, and any pretense that they weren't going to be involved is pretty much done away with. And this is something to keep in mind as it's going to become more and more overt as we go. 
quite literally the most overt. So anyways, when the electors made their decision, Gregory was at the Basilica of Saints Cosmas and Damien, and when he was informed of his election, he protested that he was unsuited for such a ministry and had to be forcibly removed from the Basilica to be brought to the Lateran, so the Limber Pontificalis tells us, quote, but he could not resist such a great multitude. They led him to the said place with hymns and spiritual chants. What's that meme? It's like two things and then I'm forcibly removed from whatever. I don't know. Have oh my I, God. I, don't, I don't think I've seen this meme. A forcible removal meme? Arrive wherever. Dick out. Dick yeah, out. That, that, will do, that will do it. I'm forcibly removed from the premises. But he's like... At whatever church. The Basilica of Saints Cosmos and Damien. <laughs> Not worthy. Forcibly removed to the Lateran. Well, that is that is exactly what happened. And this happened in October of 827. But as per the Constitutio, the consecration of a newly elected pope was to be put on hold until the imperial legates communicated the election results to Emperor Louis and for him to give his approval. We didn't see that happen last time, but this time it did, and so Gregory waited. And waited. And waited. He got sick of waiting at one point and considered having a consecration before the approval arrived, since Valentine had been consecrated without confirmation. But the imperial envoys argued vehemently enough against this idea that he reconsidered and went back to waiting. And he ended up waiting until the end of March of the following year before he actually received approval and was finally consecrated on March 29th, 828, five months after his election. Wow, that's a long in-between again. Yeah, we're back to it. And if this wasn't grating enough, Louis's letter of approval also berated the Pope a little for having considered having that consecration before. Like, when he got impatient and went, maybe we should just do it, Louis is now chastising him for that. So Louis had actually gotten wind of that before he'd penned a reply of approval. So he was just sitting on it, basically. So this is a step back in terms of papal independence and very much looked like the old Byzantine papacy days. But Gregory seems to at least have taken this on the chin and continued to send the required annual embassies because he didn't want to jeopardize the papal-Frankel relations. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem as if Gregory's agreeability at this point endeared him to the emperor, as his envoys continued to make decisions that didn't support the papacy. And nowhere was this clearer than in the ongoing dispute over the Abbey of Farfa. That sounds like, you know, FASFA. Something you sign up for, like money from the government. Farfa. It always makes me think of the dice game Farkle, because oh, Farkle. one of my clients, Cheyenne, loves nothing more in the world than playing Farkle. That's fair. Every time I hear anything that starts with Farf, that's where my brain goes. The Fa Federal something. It's all like a big blob of letters at the end every time. It's like, make <laughs> sure you get your, your, your F-related paperwork in. America. So, in January of 829, the abbot of Farfa, who's still Ingold, appealed to the imperial missi, requesting a formal hearing of his grievances. 
A hearing was granted in the Lateran Palace with Pope Gregory in attendance to hear Ingold's arguments. And he argued that the original document of exemption issued by Charlemagne in 777 had never been overturned, so Pope Adrian's demand of yearly taxes and subsequent Pope's claims on lands and dues from the Abbey were illegal, and that Lothair's imperial decree that the Popes should return holdings to the monastery had gone ignored. Pope Gregory dismissed these arguments, stating that the original exemption from Charlemagne had made Farfa exempt from all taxes, subject only to the papacy, and therefore no other decrees were valid, and the papacy was still owed privilege over the abbey. So the imperial envoys heard these arguments, deliberated, and surprise, surprise, they concluded that the imperial decrees should be followed, and all holdings and lands that had been seized by the papacy should be restored to the control of the abbey. Ugh. So back and forth on the Sparfa Abbey here. But just like we've seen before, the Pope just refused to accept the ruling. He's like, no, subject only to the Pope means subject only to the Pope. You cannot tell me what to do, I am the Pope. Did you just Tommy Wiseau the Pope? <laughs> I did. I did. You did. You didn't mean to, but you did. I can't, I can't say cannot anymore. Did not, yeah. Without it being a thing. Unfortunately, we're not sure what happened from this point on, is we don't have a papal decree that refuses or overturns the decision, and more important issues are going to distract this from going anywhere at all. And this is because, for the majority of his papacy, Gregory was going to be preoccupied with a massive conflict that had the potential to change everything. And effectively, it does change everything, because our already troublesome Carolingian Emperor Louis was locked in a fight with his sons over the empire. And we're talking, like, full-scale civil war that breaks up the Carolingian Empire. Let's dig into a little context. Why can't they just wait for him to die? Well, we're gonna get into it. And of course, I'm going to say this now, this is not a Carolingian history podcast, so the overview we're gonna give is brief, not at all exhaustive, and there's so much more that could be said here about every aspect, and Thank I've God. done that research. <laughs> I'm so tired of these Carolingians. Send them away. At least I forget about the Lombards existing. You do, but you will not forget about the Franks. They're going to be around for a while, but this is really going to break things up. So, back in 817, in the papacy of Pascal I, Emperor Louis had issued a succession plan known as the Ordinatio Imperii that named his eldest son Lothair as the emperor, but divided the empire so that Louis's other sons, Pepin of Aquitaine and Louis the German, would receive their own kingdoms, but it would basically remain undivided as an empire. So it would still be an empire as a whole. They would just actually have their own kingdoms within the empire. So still breaking things up. It never goes well. But since that time, Louis's wife, Ermengarde of Hesbe, Ermengarde, has died, <laughs> and Emperor Louis has remarried to Judith of Bavaria. And in 823, Judith and Louis had a son, Charles, who will become known to history as Charles the Bald. Oh, that's unfortunate. Is he actually bald? 
there's even debates about whether or not he was actually bald, but he, he will forever be known as Charles the Bald. And it is unfortunate, but it's still not Charles the Fat. So Charles the Bald is born, and this caused Louis to reevaluate the division of the empire so that he could bestow a kingdom on Charles as well. Charles will get Alemannia, to which he was crowned on June 6th of 829. At what age? He would have been six. And this set the other sons off. They are so mad about this. But I want to point out, before we go any further, that in the sources, pretty much everything that happens here, from Louis changing the Ordinatio to the Civil Wars, is often squarely blamed on Judith, Louis's new wife. That's not fair. How dare Judith make baby? Well, she's portrayed as cunning and power-hungry and manipulative and so focused on making Charles the favored imperial son that she destroys the empire, right? Agobard of Leon calls her the cause of all evils. Pascasius Redbertus accuses her of corruption and witchcraft and infidelity. So this is so prevalent in the sources that even some later historians didn't question it at all, and she still maintains a very ugly reputation. Now, admittedly, Judith was a very powerful advocate for her son, and she did utilize a tremendous amount of influence to control the court of the Franks, and so it may be that she was every bit as scheming and ambitious as the sources would have us believe, but I also don't see any sources calling Louis a crap dad for his favoritism or his absolute failure to bring about stability. No, he can't do anything wrong. Remember, he has a penis. That's right. He has a man. Like, the worst I saw was Horace K. Mann referring to his weakness of character while still calling Judith scheming. So it's all very feminine wiles, like we saw against Theodora and Antonina in the reign of Emperor Justinian. Be nice to historical ladies, everybody. Yeah, so just keep that in mind as we go through that the whole time they're blaming all of this on Judith, and it's just that historical trope of nonsense. So in 830, following the crowning of Charles the Bald as King of Alemannia, Lothair, Louis, and Pepin rebelled against their father, seized the Emperor Louis and deposed him, and forced Judith into exile at the nunnery of St. Radigud in Poitiers. They went so far as to argue that Emperor Louis wasn't even actually the father of Charles the Bald, accusing Judith of infidelity, How dare of course. They? It's the usual, right? So... Fortunately, this rebellion was rather short-lived, and when Louis backtracked and agreed to essentially re-establish the original terms of the Ordinatio, the tentative peace was reached. Louis was restored as emperor, although under some overt monastic surveillance. Could you imagine if someone just, like, if, if some family, like, rolled up and was like, I hate my stepmom so much? It's exactly what you would expect to happen, though. It would happen all the time, right? Yeah, yeah, but like... Uh, she's cheating on my dad, she's a witch. We're, we're writing an HBO drama as we speak here. <laughs> That's exactly what's happening. But they were able to, you know, so, so Louis walked it back. So his sons decided to not rebel anymore. They restored their father to the title of emperor. But they were surveilling him this time. And... 
Pepin and Louis the German renewed their oath of fealty. Lothair, though, who had not been approached to make peace, was deprived of the title of emperor, but retained the kingdom of Italy, and was sent to Italy in sort of a, a gentle exile. So clearly Louis was madder with him than he was with the other two. Judith was also able to return to her husband after swearing an oath of purgation that she'd committed no adultery, and Pope Gregory issued a letter ordering her release from the convent. He also criticized Emperor Louis for having tried to adjust the Ordinatio because it had been an agreement solemnized by a pope at the time that it was written. So if they were going to alter it, he shouldn't just be going and doing it willy-nilly. Don't change your will. I signed and notarized that thing. You can't just do that. You have to get that checked. However, this truce was also short-lived because Emperor Louis had not absorbed the reasons for his son's rebellion at all. And in 832, after an argument with Pepin, the emperor grew suspicious that Pepin might rebel against him again. So he preemptively stripped Pepin of his holdings and gave them to Charles the Bald. I like this. Louis, you're making bad decisions. This is Louis the Pious, by the way. So he's supposed to be, you know, like wise and pious and all of that. No. Big ol' idiot. He's creating a self-fulfilling prophecy, which causes Pepin and Louis the German to rebel again, followed swiftly by Lothair, who's still mad. And this time, things are set for an actual military clash. They are going to battle, and Emperor Louis begins to muster his forces at Worms in the spring of 833. Now, over in Rome, the Pope is very concerned. He definitely has a concern, yes. He is doing a heckin' concern because he is watching the empire that the papacy relies on for defense fragmenting and eating itself. If the empire collapses, the possibility of the papal states following suit is so high, it's, it's almost a given. But then he receives word from Lothair, asking the pope to come and intervene. Lothair tells the Pope that he seeks reconciliation between his brothers and his father, and he urges the Pope to come to Francia to negotiate a peace. Surely the Emperor will listen to the most holy Pope. He's pious, remember? So Gregory's like, yes, of course, and he leaves at once, and he meets Lothair at his camp in Colmar in June of 833. But this came with a little bit of unintended consequences, because despite Gregory having the most clear and genuine intention of creating a peace between Emperor Louis and all of his sons, to the Frankish bishops, the Pope suddenly taking up camp with Lothair looks like he's taking sides. And this absolutely incenses the bishops, who remain loyal to the Emperor, and they immediately declared that the Pope shouldn't be getting involved in affairs of the Empire. They're real upset about this, so they decide to declare that if he tries to excommunicate them, they'd retaliate and excommunicate him in return, or fight to depose him. Because they're like, you're getting involved, you shouldn't, and if you try to fight us on this, we'll just fight you back. You can't excommunicate the Pope. There's rules. I quote from the astronomer's Vita Huldovici, quote, then a rumor spread everywhere that the Pope had come from Rome because he wished to ensnare both the emperor and the bishops in the bonds of excommunication if they were disobedient to his will or that of the emperor's sons. But this audacious presumption was not enough to win away the emperor's bishops, who said that they in no way wished to withdraw themselves from the Pope's authority. But if he had come to excommunicate, 
he would leave excommunicated. Sure, Jan. And Pope Gregory is taken aback by this intense suspicion and aggressive declaration of the Frankish bishops. And it makes him mad, right? He dismissed their accusation of his partisan support and condemned their threat with a firm reminder that he was the voice of Peter. He wrote, quote, You have professed to have felt delighted when you heard of my arrival, thinking that it would have been of great advantage to the emperor and the people. You added that you would have obeyed my summons had it not a previous intimation of the emperor prevented you. But you ought to have regarded such an order from the Apostolic See as not less weighty than one from the emperor. The government of souls, which belongs to bishops, is more important than the imperial, which is only concerned with the temporal. Your assertion that I have only come to blindly excommunicate is shameless, and your offer to give me an honorable reception if I should come in exactly the way the emperor wanted is contemptuous. With regards to the oaths I have taken to the emperor, I will avoid perjury by pointing out to the emperor what he has done against the unity of peace of the church and his kingdom. With regards to the bishops in opposing my efforts in behalf of peace, what they threaten has not been done from the beginning of the church. He's mad. He's yeah, like, he how dare you? I'm here in good faith to encourage reconciliation. And that is exactly what he was there to do and what he meant to do. And so he goes to the emperor, hoping to speak with him directly. Initially, Louis seems to have shared the opinion of his bishops, and he receives the pope rather coolly. But Gregory was able to convince him of his intentions and spent several days with the emperor, accomplishing what he sent out to do. So when he goes back to the Lothair's camp, he has a peace agreement endorsed by the emperor. Again, we have an account from the astronomer. When they were arrayed with their battle lines drawn up not far from each other, and the rush to arms was already thought to be imminent, the arrival of the Roman pope was announced to the emperor. The emperor stood right in that battle line to receive him as he arrived. Pope's here. And he's standing on the battle line. I'll get him. To be sure, rather less honorably than was normal, telling him that he himself would have prepared such a reception for someone who had come to him in such an unusual way. The pope was then led to the emperor's tent, and he carefully set forth many assurances that he would not have undertaken such a journey, except that it was reported that the emperor was struggling in unremitting discord against his sons, and therefore he wished to sow peace amongst both parties. He then listened to the emperor's side and remained with him a few days. But it was all a ruse for betrayal. <gasps> betrayal. It was a ruse. A bean trail. While the Pope had been negotiating with Louis, Lothair had taken advantage of both of them being entirely distracted and had bought or persuaded Louis's troops out from underneath him. <gasps> and so when the Pope realized this, as he gets back to Louis's camp, he tries to go back to the Emperor because he's like, oh, crap. But he was forbidden from leaving Lothair's camp. We have an account from Prudentius of Troy writing for the Annals of St. Burton, quote, Lothair came from Italy by bringing Pope Gregory with him, Pippin from Aquitaine, and Louis from Bavaria, with a very large number of men. When the Lord Emperor met with the Pope, he was completely unable to prevent the sons from continuing their willful course. Rather, it was they who deceived the people who had come with the Lord Emperor by evil persuasions and false promises, with the result that everyone deserted him. Louis was so deserted that when it came to meet in battle at Rothfeld, he didn't have a chance. He didn't have any soldiers left. So he refuses to fight, 
and was forced into a full-on surrender. And this moment, and the place where the battle would have met, are now known as the Field of Lies. Not dreams, lies. Not cloth and gold, lies. So Emperor Louis was deposed for a second time and restricted to a monastery to live as a penitent, as was Charles the Bald, and Judith was sent away in exile again. Lothair assumed full imperial power, and the Pope returned to Rome with great sadness, says the astronomer. He'd been blindsided, and this negotiation had been the most abject failure of papal diplomacy ever. But the Pope was not the only person displeased with the situation. And it turned out, even though Lothair's brothers Pepin and Louis had begun this rebellion, they also considered Lothair's actions to be excessive and not in keeping with what they had wished to accomplish. After all, Lothair's actions benefited only Lothair more than coming to a peaceful division of the Empire's kingdoms for everyone. And so Louis the German was able to make peace with his father again, followed very quickly by Pepin, and they both turned on Lothair, who had to flee to Italy. And so once more, their father was reinstated as emperor in 834, although clearly not on any sort of stable footing. So given Lothair's duplicity, we might assume that the Pope would be pleased to see him overthrown and Louis reinstated. But he also must have been very concerned because intentionally or not, the Pope had played a role in the Emperor's deposition, and there may be consequences. He effectively served as the distraction to steal all of Louis' troops. And what's more, Lothair was now in Italy, having fled, and he decided to use his time in his one protected kingdom to amass new wealth for himself by taking treasures out of the church. Just gonna do some looting and pillaging while I'm here. I guess. Yeah, it's not good. It's not good all around. This is just a terrible, sticky situation. So the Pope wrote to the Emperor, outlining Lothair's aggression against this church, and asked him to intercede. But what he received instead was an imperial delegation coming to interrogate the Pope about his role in Louis' deposition on the Field of Lies. Clearly, the Emperor doesn't fully trust the Pope now, and before he sent any assistance to the Pope, he wanted to be satisfied that the Pope really hadn't known that that was what was going to happen. No, he's just confused. He was duped as much as Louis was duped. He's like, I'm here to be the peaceful Pope. I'm going to make a peace. It's going to be wonderful. Oh no, what's happened? So... Gregory, who Horace K. Mann tells us the envoys found very ill and continually bleeding from the nose, swore an oath that his intentions had been exactly what he had professed to the emperor at the time, and that he wanted nothing more than a lasting peace between the emperor and his sons that would keep the empire together. It does not say whether this oath that was sworn was an oath of purgation, but given that this has become the custom with popes and with the Franks, we can assume so, especially considering that the envoys accepted his declaration and returned to the emperor to advocate for the pope and to stop Lothair from plundering the churches. And although Gregory was still smarting from failing to be the peacemaker pope, at this time, maybe he felt that things might finally get back on track. Louis's back in charge. I've settled it with him. 
we can finally bring that peace together. But no. There was a third outbreak of civil war in 837 <sighs> because Louis still hadn't learned and decided to bestow more land on Charles the Bald, provoking Louis the German to rebel again. The emperor had also given Charles Aquitaine when Pepin died, but he was rebuffed by the nobles of Aquitaine who had pledged their allegiance to the son of Pepin instead, also called Pepin. Not as important. This rebellion, though, ended quickly because Lothair allied with his father rather than with his brother in order to win back his territory and the title of emperor. He's like, ah, I could be emperor again, not just king of Italy, if I ally with my dad, so you're out of luck. And this time, the Pope stayed the hell out of it. Because what more could he actually do? But less than a year from that resolution... Emperor Louis the Pious died on June 20th, 840. His final acts were to pardon his sons and acknowledge Lothair as his imperial successor. Everything kind of comes full circle. They're finally back where they started, essentially. Which only leads to further conflict between Lothair and his remaining brothers, Charles the Bald and Louis the German, who decided to ally together against him. This is round four. But now, the Pope was hoping for a new opportunity to bring about peace, right? Most of the conflict had been due to Emperor Louis favoring Charles, but he's now gone, and perhaps there could be a resolution that would leave the brothers in accord and the Empire intact. And perhaps Gregory, our Pope, could be the one to arrange this peace, which would reestablish relations with the Empire that were otherwise less than great, thanks to Lothair. But rather than go himself this time, the Pope dispatched the Archbishop of Ravenna, George, as a papal legate to Lothair to assist him in negotiating a peace. Now, unfortunately, the moment that George arrived in Lothair's court, he was detained so that he would have no opportunity to go to the other brothers. Lothair just fully intended to crush them outright and not have a peace negotiation at all. So, once again, the Pope failed to bring about the peace he so desperately wanted a hand in. And side note, do you remember Agnellus, our very anti-papal historian who wrote the Liber Revenatus? I feel like this is, like, not a recent thing. No, he just, every time that one of the archbishops of Ravenna tries to be autocephalous, he's like, this is the best thing ever, the Pope sucks, we don't want to be under him. That guy? Yeah, yeah. What was the last episode we mentioned him in? It's been a while. It's been a while. He's coming back soon. He definitely covers most of our Ravenese archbishops. So it's been a while, a good maybe 10 or 15 episodes, but he's back. And he tells the story of George a little bit differently and recounts that Archbishop George was sent by the Pope, but he also had his own designs to bribe the emperor into declaring Ravenna autocephalous again. He describes the wealth and treasure that George brought with him, quote, thinking that through this he might change the hearts of the emperors so that he might escape from under the power of the Roman bishop. Because, according to Agnellus, this is all that any bishop of Ravenna ever wants. But in any account, what happened next was a decisive battle between Lothair and his brothers at the Battle of Fontenay, June 25th, 841. And Lothair was defeated. And this resulted in the famous Treaty of Verdun, 843, 
when the Frankish Empire was divided between the brothers. Charles the Bald got West Francia, which will become France. Louis the German got East Francia, which will become Germany. And Lothair got Middle Francia, which is Italy and some middling territory of Germany and France. Lothair got to keep the title of Emperor, but what he could call Empire was no longer really an empire. This is sort of the end of the Carolingian Empire, and these kingdoms will now mostly function separately and independently-ish. And there was just nothing that Pope Gregory could have done to stop it. Also, we learn from Prudentius of Troy that in the battle, Archbishop George had been captured. Quote, in this battle, George Bishop of Ravenna was taken prisoner. He had been sent by Pope Gregory to Lothair and his brothers to arrange a peace, but he had been detained by Lothair and not allowed to go on to his brother. He was now sent home with due honor. So this is all of it, and the only other part that Pope Gregory would play in this Carolingian crisis was concerning Aldric, the Bishop of Le Mans, who had been forcibly deposed in the latest civil war due to his loyalty to Charles the Bald. Aldric, being exiled, arrived in Rome and pled his case to the Pope, who wrote to the bishops of all of Francia to remind them that bishops absolutely had the right to appeal to the Pope, and instructed that while the Pope was in judgment, no sentence could be passed against a bishop, and any who attempted to pass a sentence was no longer in communion of the Church. Because, again, it seems like every time that a bishop tries to appeal to a Pope, there are harsher measures taken against them, or even violent reprisals to prevent them from appealing to the Pope. Remember Wilfred of York? All of that. He judged that Aldrich's loyalty was not a cause for canonical deposition, and ordered him restored to his bishopric. That is literally all that he got to make a difference in, in this whole situation. Oh. But from this point on, Pope Gregory turned his attention inward on Rome, not knowing what the future held for the Papal States. He did not have an empire to rely on for muscle, and it was time to make some plans. And this was so, so important, because during Gregory's papacy, Sicily was finally conquered and taken from the Byzantines by the Muslim Caliphate after a messy rebellion situation from the Byzantine commander of Sicily. In very short summary, the commander of the fleet in Sicily, a man called Euphemius, forced a nun to marry him and then rebelled when the emperor commanded him to end his marriage and that his nose should be cut off. Ugh. So he basically just offered Sicily up to the Muslims who walked in and kicked the door down. So in light of this new, very close Muslim stronghold and the fact that the squabbling lords in southern Italy are occasionally inviting Muslim troops in to aid in their personal disputes, Concerns that there might be a Saracen attack on Rome is at an all-time high, and they no longer have Franks that will come and fight for them. So, in order to protect Rome, the Pope built and fortified the defenses of the port of Ostia, some of which he oversaw personally, if we're to believe the Liber Pontificalis. He reinforced the garrisons there, and even attempted to rename the port city after himself to Gregoriopolis. Obviously, that didn't stick. No. Ostia is still called Ostia. But it's very lucky, because it would not be long before an actual assault is made on Rome, and this fortification is going to make some big difference there. So that's coming up in a future episode. 
He also fortified areas in Rome and in Campania by rebuilding or establishing farm colonies and towns, like the Galeria on the Via Portoensis and Deacon on the Via Ostiensis, which not only added more organized groups in the countryside, but also contributed to the patrimonies of the church, making more money, have more people, ready for defense, it's all good. In Rome itself, he also undertook repairs to the Aqueduct of Trajan and the Sabatine Aqueduct, which had been damaged during Leo III's papacy, which of course is always significant to the health and welfare of the Roman people. Gotta make it nice. Gotta make it nice. And it turns out that the Sabatine Aqueduct still supplies the fountains for St. Peter's today. So, you know, very important. In terms of church building and restoration, Gregory did as many of his predecessors did, and lavished special attention on his titular church, completely rebuilding San Marco and beautifying the interior with Byzantine mosaics. He also rebuilt the atrium of St. Peter's and constructed an altar in the Santa Maria of Trastevere. He also continued the tradition of translating the relics of saints and martyrs from the catacombs and cemeteries into churches and basilicas, allegedly having moved St. Sebastian and Gorgonius, amongst others. It's also said that he moved the body of St. Gregory... Pope Gregory the Great, into a new place in St. Peter's. Also, in the wider scope of the church, Gregory confirmed St. Ansgar, our Apostle of the North, to be consecrated as the Bishop of Hamburg with a pallium in November of 831 for his evangelization effort in Northern Europe. The future saint came to Rome for the consecration, where the Pope confirmed him as the legate for all the territories that he'd established missionaries in, and for all of the Swedes, Danes, and Slavs. He also reaffirmed the palliums to the archbishops of Salzburg, Canterbury, and Grado while he was at it. And finally, Pope Gregory was also the first pope to decree the universal observant of the Feast of All Saints, thus popularizing its celebration throughout Europe and into the modern day. Ooh, almost Halloween, but not quite. Exactly, yes. Your favorite. <laughs> Halloween is my favorite. It's true. And if I know you're familiar with the Feast of All Saints, but if our listeners are not familiar with the Feast of All Saints, it is a feast day for all of the saints, celebrated on November 1st. He's not the first pope to celebrate All Saints Day, as there were celebrations for all martyrs in the early 7th century, and the November 1st observance of All Saints has been documented in the papacy of Gregory III. But he's part of the extended adoption, which will bring us All Hallows, Halloween, Hallowtide, All Saints Day, All Souls Day, all of that. It needs to be said. But then Pope Gregory IV died on January 25th of 844 of natural causes. He was buried in St. Peter's Basilica, and Wendy J. Reardon says that his tomb was destroyed for new St. Peter's. But there's also this image that floats around online of a tomb that's associated with him. This is not his tomb, but rather one of the martyr tombs that Gregory constructed in the relics translations. And when I found this tomb and I was trying to figure this out, I was trying to get a translation of what the tomb actually said to determine for sure that this wasn't his tomb. So I need to send a huge thanks to Josh Hevert, fellow podcaster at Footnoting History and papal historian, who helped out and helped translate the inscription, which, just for clarification, says, The bodies of the martyrs Abdon and Senan, along with many others whose names are written in the book who were buried in the cemeteries, are buried in this tomb 
by the command of Pope Gregory IV, the Supreme Pontiff, on this date, blah, blah, blah. It's not his tomb. It's a tomb that he made. But I have a picture of that tomb for you. I would love to see it. I just needed a translation to be sure. This is not his tomb. Not his tomb. Look at that very large plaque or very small coffin. (laughs) It's a very small little sepulcher, isn't it? (laughs) I need a banana for scale. (laughs) Well, and this was very common at the time because they, they love to, it becomes very popular to like reuse ancient Roman tombs wherever they can find them. And they tend to be quite small as well. So this was probably reused at the time. They just sort of uh, crunch up the body. They don't. You don't need that much space. Honestly, you're dead. Remember when we made Pascal the uh, patron saint of throwing things into coffins unnecessarily? <laughs> yeah. well, there you go. <laughs> That's exactly what's happening. So that is Pope Gregory the Fourth, and now we need to rate him. Papatum infallium. In his favor, he popularized the observance of the Feast of All Saints. He confirmed Saint Ansgar of a bishop. And unfortunately, that is all we can say in terms of good things, Pope-wise, because bad, he wasn't consecrated for half a year waiting on imperial confirmation, he wasn't able to use his influence to bring about a papal negotiated peace, Lothair certainly got the upper hand, in fact, he wasn't able to exert much papal influence at all, we see again this whole Farfa ruling situation. He didn't accept the imperial decision, but this amounts to very little. The only time where we see him trying to exert papal influence is in his chastisement of the French bishops, who essentially came at him for being in Lothair's camp, even though he was doing nothing wrong. Considering how long he was pope for, he doesn't accomplish a lot for the church, and the church, like, at all, or the papacy itself, but he does accomplish some things that we'll give him credit for in other categories. I'm leaning towards maybe a five, like middle of the road here. Oh, okay. That's I was that's feeling very generous nice about aqueducts, honestly. But I guess that's the other one. That would be in the secular I am ah, for so sure. So maybe I'm only gonna give him a three. You're gonna give him a three. I'm gonna give him I'm gonna give him a point for All Saints Day because You love Halloween. I love Halloween, and this is going to tie it all together. That almost might be worth two points, but uh, I will give him... No, I'm going to give him a two. He gets a point for all, for feast day, and he gets a point for St. Ansgar, and that's it. So he'll get a five in Papatum and Valium. Fructus prohibitum. If he had been complicit in Lothair's plan to conspire against Emperor Louis... This would be worth some points. Like, if they were actually working to distract and scheme the emperor, this would be something. And perhaps you could make an argument that he might have been, but pretty much all the sources agree that he he was there in genuine good spirits to make a peace and nothing else. So, do you believe him? <laughs> he tried. I believe him. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's gotta be a zero. Seculari impactum. So there's that aqueducts. Aqueducts. That's a good one. He fortified and rebuilt Ostia to protect Rome from invasion. Big importance. He did try to bring about peace in a very contentious civil war multiple times. Unfortunately, he was just not successful. 
And on top of fortifying and rebuilding Ostia, he built the area of Campania around. It's seen as the first land development undertaken by a pope as a secular ruler of the land. So he's he is trying to be a practical secular ruler at the same time. So there's that. So you wanted to give him some good points for those aqueducts. I did. I want to give him some points. All right. This is where I will give him a nice mm, six-ish. Oh, a six? That's good. Yeah. I, You know, I'm going to match that because of the whole Ostia thing as well. It's pretty good. So he'll get a 12 in Seculari Impactum. Fossium Sanctus. Now, I'm going to send you an image and you can tell me whether you think this man looks like a pug. Like a pug. <laughs> oh. I mean, a little. <laughs> a little. It's kind of squishy. He's got a smoosh face. He has a thousand yard stare, though. This is the moment when he was told that Lothair took all of Louis's troops. Yes. <laughs> he looks so incredibly shell shocked. His nose looks like it's been punched into shape. Yeah. He definitely has a punchy nose. But before you give a rating on this one, Someone has taken this image and really zhuzhed it, so I'm going to send you that one so that we can consider both of them, because they're the same image, before we give him a score. So here's the zhuzh. Oh, well. Thousand Yard Stare is still very much there. Now it's smoldering. <laughs> yeah, we get, we get a little bit more feeling in that high def. <laughs> wow. Okay. It's a little bit less smushy. His nose is still, like, punching. He's got a whole Owen Wilson problem going on there. Very much so, yes. So what would you like to rate this man and his face? I can give him a six. A six? Okay. I, I'm taking a little bit of pity on him because I just feel bad for him in general. And, and for me, that puts him middle of the road. I'm giving him a five, so he'll get eleven. And when we score that out, that's a 2.75. However, I have one more image to show you. This is the dumbest image. This is a famous image of him receiving a book from Rubanus Morris, who was a Frankish Benedictine monk, author of the Encyclopedia de Rerum Naturis, which is on the nature of things, and one of the most prominent teachers and writers of the Carolingian age. But this is the dumbest picture. Are you ready? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Here you go. Ah. Ah, no one has necks. No one has necks. It's all very... Everybody looks so stupid. I just... Everyone looks like uh, Jeremy from Top Gear. It's fine. Jeremy Clarkson is all up in here. They do! They look exactly like him! That's the stupid face! It's... Oh, it's so dumb. When I saw this image, I laughed out loud. Because everyone is also, like insanely short and malformed rubbish rubbish is correct <laughs> i hate this image looks like jeremy clarkson but if you cut okay if you took jeremy clarkson and again you're gonna see that i've been watching king of the hill lately because you gotta take cotton hill with his no shins and like <laughs> slam them together because none of these people have shins <laughs> no no shins they're the, 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 the one who is is sitting is supposed to be the pope and he's sitting very strangely he's sitting like a mermaid everyone shaped like cotton or danny devito with jeremy clarkson's face yep <laughs> that's how stupid this image is everyone's tonsure the the part above the hair is way too fat 
Oh, it's huge. It is like, yeah. Oh, I hate it. They got tumors. It's fun. What an awful <laughs> image. Swelling brain. I'm I know, sorry, I artists know. from years ago. It's just, it's just everything. Everything is wrong with it. They got squinty eyes. It's, yeah. I've been waiting to show you this one for a while. Tempest Pontificus. October 827 to January 25th, 844 from his election, but March 9th, 828 to January 25th, 844 for his consecration, which is what he gets scored from. So 16 years and a score of four. Ooh, four. It's the longest we've had in a while. Well, Adrian did pretty well. Five. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round. No, he's not a saint. Which brings us to his total score, which is a 23.75. Middle. All things considered, not bad. So I must ask you, Fry, whether you think he is papally enough or pizzazzy enough with an impact enough for a papal bull. I don't know why you keep asking me for these Carol and Jean Popes. Just assume I'm going to say no. Look, we are going to get into some Carolingian Popes that are an absolute yes. So <laughs> you say that, but no, this man couldn't even make an impact in his own time. He certainly doesn't make an impact enough for a legacy. I'm sorry. I just feel bad for you, Gregory IV, but it's a no. But this is not the end of our episode because we have a very quick a Pope Watch. Oh, we haven't had one of those in a while. Oh, is this? Okay. I know. I know what it is. Most of it is because news, world news has just been so depressing and I couldn't be arsed. But today we have some very good news and, and I'd like to share it. So as of today, which is March 31st, 2021, COVID vaccinations for the homeless and the vulnerable people of Rome are being administered at the Vatican's Paul VI Hall. They'll be vaccinating about 1,200 people in the next three days, and this is an effort put together by our favorite cardinal, Cardinal Krajewski, after Pope Francis appealed that vaccinations should be available to all and no people should be excluded. That's awesome. Good job. I'm so happy about it. Well done. And I would like to also thank Ines San Martin, which is one of the papal news people I follow. She's the first one who brought this to my attention, and I was just very happy to see it. So on that note, I'd also like to make a thank you for our Patreon supporters, because we have one to absolve of their temporal punishments. So thank you to Brian Anderson. Ego te absolvo. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at pontifexpod at gmail.com. And we're Pontifax Pod on all social media platforms. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing to Pontifax on Patreon. Checking out our research wishlist at tinyurl.com slash pontifaxwishlist. Or making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash pontifaxpodcast. If you'd like to support us in other ways, rating and reviewing the show on iTunes makes a world of difference. And with that, we can say thank you for listening. And goodbye. Oh, goodbye.